Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Matt Phillips, a running injury and performance specialist. Yes, he does treat runners who are injured, but his ultimate goal is to decrease running injuries in runners, both from the educational side with the athlete as well as with a clinician, ultimately teaching courses and hosting in a conference upcoming here in October. I think you'll find the information that Matt and I discussed very useful and very helpful for you as a runner as well as a clinician who treats runners. So let's tune in. Matt, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. I'm glad I'm sitting down and I've stopped bleeding. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you shared the story with me, but um, let's have you share the story again. Why are you injured right now? Well, I'm not injured. As well, I suppose I am injured a lot more than a lot of the people who think they're injured. I am injured. I'm bleeding. That's a good definition <laughs> of it. I fell over when I was running. It's embarrassing. It wasn't technical. It was just on pavement. And I was three miles into a little 10 miler and just went totally ass over. And I said to you, it's embarrassing falling over when you're a runner anyway, because you've already got people looking at you kind of thinking, oh, God, bloody runners, you know. But when you're six foot six and you fall over, legs and arms everywhere, then that's really embarrassing. So I'm standing there with blood trickling down from my hand, down my arm and down my leg. And I had that choice of either kind of turning around and walking back or just doing the rest of the run. So I thought, oh, it'll be okay. So yeah, I got on with it. It was a nice way of testing the whole kind of pain as an output from the brain and affected by a lot of sensory input. And it did. It went after a couple of minutes. Now and again, I licked it. because I think saliva's got some kind of, was that a cat? I'm not sure if it works for humans, but I was just licking my wounds a little bit along the way. And of course, you run with your hands near your heart anyway. So that stopped the bleeding. It actually started hurting more when I finished the run and started walking. Then that hurt. But yeah, I'm fine. So it's, it's nice to be sitting down and not bleeding. There we go. And you save the face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Important bit. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. It is a Sunday that we're recording. So I really appreciate you taking time off your weekend in order to record with me first and foremost. My pleasure. I want you to share a little bit of your background with the listeners. Um, obviously you are a runner, but kind of what kind of what's been your path as far as as an athlete and as a clinician as well to get into where you are at today. Okay. So, um, years ago, my introduction was running was as a way of just supporting martial arts was originally from kind of eight to 20, my main sport, and running was just a kind of a, a tool to, to to enable me to get hit or hit other people without gassing out. So it was great. But then I'd stopped doing martial arts and um, and kept the running going. Um, at the same time, I was involved very much in strength and conditioning. So my shift turned over to runners. A lot of the people I started seeing in the gym were runners. Um, and then it turned into, well, all very good building these people up and making them stronger, but what about if they're injured? So I started going down the route of sports therapy. Um, so then it came where I could build them up and also kind of at the time, what I thought was fix them as well and make some differences. Um, years went by, gait analysis came along. We were one of the first companies in the UK to have full body gait analysis at Stride UK, which was great. So I've seen a lot of fads come and go and, and I've learned that you have to move with the times being as old as I am. Um, which I'm, I'm quite happy saying now as the video is not on, it's great. So, uh, so, um, and now today, um, I've actually 
last year I moved away from full-time uh, clinic to um, now I just do clinic when people need me. Um, I do uh, teaching a lot um, to therapists and workshops. And then um, I've got a clinic which I'll go to if people contact me and they're kind of banging their head against the wall, not finding a solution. And we've got a gate analysis lab as well, which we use. Um, and the main emphasis now is just try to educate I mean, I, I, there was a time when I kind of thought, oh, no, someone else on Facebook doing another FaceTime live and a broadcast. And I've always been a bit of a devil's advocate or a bit of a kind of a grump. And I thought everyone's doing it. And then I came back from Kenya after a trip over there where I was lucky enough to work with some runners. And I had so much, I mean, coming back from Kenya, I had so much I wanted to tell people. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to just do a Facebook podcast, uh, it's a Facebook broadcast. And so I did a little 20 minute thing about Kenya, what I'd learned and, and then that got quite popular. A few people gave me some feedback. I thought, actually, I might, might do these regularly. So that turned into Run Chat Live, which is kind of a regular every week or two times a month podcast. Again, still on Facebook as a video, but then we send it out on Spotify and all that. And that's proved really popular, uh, which was nice because I get to choose people I want to talk to, like yourself. Um, I've thought about choosing people I don't want to talk to, just so confirmation bias doesn't get in the way. But... <laughs> conversation doesn't flow when it's somebody telling me you know that they're going to clear my chakras I, I i give them the respect that they deserve but what are you going to say to somebody who's kind of on a different level it's tricky and it's not going to make mm -hmm. good entertainment for, for education people watching so but it's all come together in a wonderful big kind of uh culmination and this year in october we're putting together a, a big conference international run chat live conference in brighton where i live where i've got the pleasure of putting 10 specialist therapists together under one roof um, including guests who you've had, like Chris Johnson, um, and also Simon Bartold is coming over, Jeff Escolier from Canada, um, a lot of people, a lot of local uh, English uh, physiotherapists, osteopaths, podiatrists, um, which is great. I'm hoping it'll become a yearly thing because my biggest passion is trying to provide quality CPD, continuing professional development for therapists. I've been there, I know how much it costs. It's a great thing in theory, CPD, but when you're kind of being pulled onto courses which aren't really evidence-based, you can spend a lot of money on, on something. And also you get a lot of imposter syndrome. As a th All therapists know what it's like to think, I don't know enough. You know, every, cause, and that's how it's always going to be because there's always going to be someone who comes in who doesn't fit the box of the last course you were taught. So it makes you think, I don't know anything. And then suddenly you see a flashy new, oh, get the new ARTGDM6.1 course coming out. You know, and, it's, and they produce a Facebook post, which has somehow got 20,000 likes and 60 million shares. And you think, I've got to do that. Another grand down the line, another day at the clinic, and someone comes in who doesn't fit the box. So I really got, I'm passionate about trying to deliver good quality CPD for especially young graduates and physiotherapists from all disciplines. Um, because also that ultimately is the best way of helping, you know, bring down injuries and in runners. I'm, I'm, that's my, on the same note. That's my thing for is to try to bring down this huge incidence of running injuries. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, obviously the fact it hasn't come down since the eighties, which is what studies show means despite all the technology and the courses and the DVDs and the running forms and the, it's not working, you know, um, runners are still getting injured as much as they were 30, 40 years ago. And I want to change that. Awesome. Is that too much of a task? Is that too <laughs> no, much no, to no, ask? No, no, no. We just have to outlive everyone else's marketing budgets. That, oh, yeah. That's, that's tough. All. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. 
<laughs> so when we're looking, like there's, I can't remember the exact stats, but it's something like 80 to 85% of run runners get injured through some time in their life. Um, everyone wants to go towards technology, shoes, um, listening to their friends' advice, that sort of thing. Um, but we know that then they still continue getting injured. So when you're looking at kind of changing this viewpoint in people, what specifically are you looking to change? Like what are you looking at exercise? Are you looking at how they're actually running that gait analysis itself? Like what direction are you kind of, um, or what do you focus on? I think it's, it's a lot of the time it's, it's, there's different for different runners, you've got to approach in different ways. But the overriding factor, I think, is making a runner understand that they are in charge of how likely it is they're going to get injured in the terms of how often they go out, um, how, how if they suddenly decide one day to hit the hills and they haven't done that before, um, or if they decide to go out every day. I mean, over here in the UK, January clinics are full because suddenly social media is full of jantastic you know, and everyone goes out for 30 days for January and then they're surprised that they're injured, you know, and, and, and it's like, why am I injured? What's going on? It's like, well, because you ran 30 days in a row after not running for a whole month and having your feet up all Christmas. So it's giving, and, but that sarcasm doesn't work with runners. They're just going to walk out and go somewhere <laughs> else. But it's, and I have to be very careful because I'm a very sarcastic person. It's my downfall, but also it makes me laugh. But, um, <laughs> It's, it's educating runners to believe that if you're injured, it's something you've done. It's not because you've bought the wrong shoes. It's not because necessarily you're running the wrong way. Um, and also when it comes to getting better, again, you've got to take control. You can go and see a massage therapist. You can go and get someone sticking needles in you. You can go and get somebody clicking your limbs and joints. But again, if it's something which someone's doing to you, research shows it's probably not going to make a long-term difference it will bring the pain down uh, which is an important aspect but if you want to take control and you want to either avoid injury or you want to recover from injury the solution is going to be you addressing the frequency of your running it's going to be you taking control um, and rehabbing properly doing the exercises and not putting all your faith into a third party or a pair of shoes awesome so when we're talking about, let's actually go to the maybe new runner or, yeah, we'll actually do new runner first. Like, what is your suggestion? Because obviously it's not running every day for 30 days straight because that's a bad idea. Um, what's your suggestion as far as getting them to start running in a safe manner that will at least decrease their risk of getting injured? I think it's just warning people about, just letting people know that, look, you're going to enjoy this. Okay. The great thing about running is you don't need to book a court. You don't need uh, an extensive amount of gear. You haven't got to bump up your tires. You know, you haven't got to book the pool or look for your towel or your trunks. All you've got to do is chuck on some half decent shoes that aren't falling apart and go out your door. And that's a beautiful thing. That's why, and long may it remain so, but you've got to warn people about the temptation where it's going to feel good. Okay, the first run or two might feel horrible, but then you're going to start this fantastic sensation and this journey where your lungs start working, your muscles start responding. But you're going to want to go out two days in a row and then three days in a row and four days in a row. And then it's going to be a drug like anything else. You're not going to feel like you're you anymore unless you're able to go out, especially when, if you've, you know, when we've got into this culture now where every time you have a run, you've got to put your results up on Strava or kind of social media. It's like 
it's a real big thing. It's a social identity now. So I think it's warning new runners that fantastic. Welcome to the club. It's a great club, but it can get addictive. Um, injuries come from overtraining. So you've got to kind of the same as if it's in rehab, you've got to picture a little ladder and you're going to work your way up the ladders. If you want to go all the way to the top and run a marathon or something, great. But just remember you're working your way up the rungs carefully, responsibly. Cool. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. When we're looking at looking at gait analysis, I love that you kind of started that trend years ago as far as looking at that full body, not just the feet, not just what's going on in that lower in those lower limbs. So when we're looking at that, ultimately, like you said, it's not the end all be all as far as someone has to have a perfect running technique necessarily, but what are you looking at when you're looking at um, maybe these injured runners and um, analyzing their gait and trying to break down like what's contributing, what's not? Well, it's very interesting because having had the kind of luck to be around 10 years ago when it all, I remember we all, we started and shortly after we started, there was a sudden surge in, in running shoe shops, having gait analysis as well. And it was like, ah, oh, this is going to be competition for you. It's going to be terrible. But in the end, it helped us because I was going to say no disrespect to people doing a foot analysis, gait analysis in shops. But I'm, we know that just looking at a runner's foot doesn't help sell a shoe. It's old school now. I mean, I made a, quite a few enemies in my hometown and in the UK because I was saying fairly early, thanks to the giant's shoulders, the giants that I was standing on, people like Ian Griffiths, um, who's going to be at the conference. This whole, as soon as we kind of became clear, this whole overpronation paradigm wasn't science-based. What else are you looking at? Why are you going to look at their feet? What is it you're looking for? The only thing people look for, and again, analysis in the shoe shop, um, if they're just looking at ankle down, is what seems to be happening in the subtalar joint or the medial arch. How much is it falling down? Um, and they can use all the software in the world. They can draw angles. They can give you shoes and change it. But we know that it's pretty much 100% now. Um, well, we know 100% that we're not clear if it's linked to injury or how it's linked to injury. Um, the idea of creating a norm of this is where you should be. And if you're below that norm, you're an overpronator, you need this shoe. If you're above that norm, you're an oversupinator, you need this shoe. If you're bang in the middle, you're perfect. You never get injured. It's, it was, it's nonsensical. It just doesn't make that way. So in actual fact, when we were providing full body gait analysis 10 years ago, it was a great thing because we had, we were able to say, look, I know you had a gait analysis, but it wasn't actually, it was a foot analysis and we're going to look at your hips and we're going to look at the rest of your body. But things have kind of moved on because for a while we were very kind of focused on uh, lumbopelvic hip control, strengthening the glute medius. Um, there was a time when we were just focusing really on the strengthening exercises and doing clams and leg raises. But we've always tried to stay very much in touch with the research. And, and there was a time when we realized just because you strengthen your glute med, for example, um, doesn't mean it's going to have a carry on effect when you're running. So we realized, hold on, this isn't enough. Okay, do the strengthening, but we're going to need some gait retraining. So thanks to research of people coming out, um, like Rich Willie and, and people like that, we realized that you're going to have to do some gait retraining. You're going to have to run a certain way, maybe some wide um, drills um, or maybe kind of 30-second drills, visualizing, seeing yourself, elevating a hip or something or using some external cue. So we got very much involved in that. 
four or five years later, we're, it's still not clear that how someone runs is actually linked with injury. Every time there's a good study, there's another study that comes out where it just doesn't coincide. It's, we, we know that how you run is going to affect injury. We just don't know how. So now where we are at the moment is we'll use gait analysis to, to shift load, basically. Um, the best use of gait analysis is if you've got somebody who comes in and, and, and they're hurting, we look at what's hurting. We look at ways to desensitize it and hopefully get that person to keep running in a way that's going to shift the load from the sensitized tissue to something else. Um, and that kind of goes very nicely hand in hand with concepts of modern pain science, because we know if you stop running, that's going to probably delay recovery. So if we can find a way, let's imagine that your calves and Achilles are on fire um, and you come in, we do a gait analysis and you run with a mid foot, maybe even a four foot strike. Then we can play around with it, give you some cues to turn you into like more of a midfoot or God forbid, even a heel striker, just so you can actually continue running. Your body can no longer see running as the enemy, which is one of the things which coincides a lot with kind of modern pain theory and, and pain science. Um, and then you may well go back to your normal midfoot, forefoot strike, whatever, once your calves and Achilles or the whole system has a chance to calm down. So um, that's probably the most constructive way of using gait analysis that we do these days um, if someone comes in purely for performance that's always trickier because the research is it's even more difficult because there's so many other factors you may well change the way you're running but you know you're probably doing some strength training you might have changed your trainers you might have changed your training routine so but again if someone comes in and in a gait analysis we'll cover the essentials first of all so we'll look at their training program we'll look at their strength we'll look at their recovery their nutrition if all that's kind of in control and they're on top of it then hey we could play around with the way they run you know although there's variance in running forms and no one optimum way there's kind of characteristics which are associated with the most successful forms of running so if someone does come in and everything else is kind of ticking the boxes but we do notice that maybe their cadence is a little bit slow um, compared to other runners then we might play around with some some drills to speed up the cadence and see if it works but we're very careful to make sure that everything else is being ticked you know there is a it makes a lot of sense that kind of saying of if it ain't broken don't try and fix it but runners aren't very interested in that they want to get faster and quicker and be able to run longer so there's always going to be a certain amount of playing around with factors um, so if someone's not injured and they come to see you, then yeah, we can play around with stuff. But we like them to know that it's not definite. You know, it's try this out, see how it goes. If it works and your PB, you get new PBs, and fantastic. If it doesn't, we'll try something else. But um, yeah, so that's where we are these days with the gate analysis. Awesome. And I think it's important that you pointed out that, yeah, it's one study will show one thing, one study will show another thing, and that we there never is a definite as far as this 100% is causing things. Um, and it brings me back to a conversation I had recently with someone, which um, um, someone on Facebook having some pain issues, but it was the, like, my doctor says I have a high, high arch stiff foot and that's what's causing it. And it's just the whole concept when we're looking at that aspect of things of like, people who pronate, people who supinate, people who have low arches, high arches, like they all have the same problems. So it's, you know, we can't just chalk it down to, it's like this foot structure or this type of running form causes this problem. And so it makes it as a clinician, I think it makes it fun 
because it's just like a big puzzle all day. Um, but as the consumer, as the runner, it definitely leads to frustration on why is this happening? Definitely. And that's something which clinicians have to take into account um, because it may well be exciting for us and a big puzzle. And, and we, I think to be a good clinician, you have to embrace that mentality. But whether you let your paying customer know that they're a bit of a game for you is another thing because some of them take that on board and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with this. And it's kind of healthy. That's a good relationship if you can get that. But other people, especially if they're, if they're rather new to you, the last thing I want to think is you're like, well, I'm not quite sure. Actually, it could be this. But if it's not, come back in three weeks. We'll try something else. It's not. They're not gonna. They they, they want it now. They want it fixed. So that's one of the challenges for a lot of clinicians to uh, to know, you know how to how much information to give, when to give, um, and in what form. It's something which again CPD lacks in. Do you call it CPD over in Arizona? I don't know. It's not CPD, is it? What do you call continuing? Well, here, over here, it's just continuing education. Yeah. So do you use a fancy acronym to make it sell? or? Uh, CEUs sometimes. Yeah, CEUs. There you go. It's got to have an acronym to sell. So yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, there's a definite lack of... Because of, it's like research and studies have shown for a long time, but we have to realize now that as clinicians, it's like Diane Jacobs and... Uh, in, in the paper she did with Silvanel, the whole idea, we're not operators anymore. We're not surgeons. We're not having a runner lie down and we're going to twist, poke, thread, change, realign. We're not surgeons anymore. We're facilitators. Um, and we may do some passive manual therapy to try and desensitize or something, but essentially it's, it's working with that runner to educate them. So most of the CPD out there really needs to help clinicians become teachers. You know, become become educators, and a lot of what's there at the moment doesn't do that. You know, how many modules in a in a new manual therapy technique actually talk about communication, talk about um, encouraging the runner to use their own metaphors, their own language, knowing when to sit back, when to come forwards, um, controlling how much you talk and how much they talk, and all these sort of things which really are a part of teaching and coaching. And that's what therapists need to be. Uh, that's the skills they need to be developing if they're going to make a business out of it. Because one thing's for sure, and this is something I sometimes feel guilty about. Um, the best business model for being a, a therapist is telling someone it's like when, you know, dishwasher breaks, it's like, or oh, it's going to be expensive, you know, or oh, yeah, it's going to take eight weeks. That um, That's a great business model. Make someone believe that their body's busted up and you've got the skills to fix it. I mean, some, I mean, that's the big car outside. That's to sit back and feed your kids and have as many kids as you want because that's big bucks. Unfortunately, the evidence shows that the more you convince somebody their body's busted, the less likely they're going to get better. The more fragile they're going to feel, the more they're going to catastrophize. Yeah, it guarantees you money on the table, but that's where the whole ethics comes into it, you know. Some people voluntarily stick to this kind of idea of sharp and take a breath and, oh, look at this. They'll show you a, a homemade x-ray and they'll put a red dot on where this slip disc is or, you know, they'll show you a video of some donuts in a tube. Have you seen that kind of famous Dr. Oz video? It's like they'll, they'll make something, the equivalent of, so the person who's come to see you is like, geez, I am seriously screwed here i need your help and you can help me can you yeah yeah yeah. can you see my certificates look at the wall great money earner but some people do it without even knowing you know some some therapists have got the best intentions in the world but the language they use 
um, you know, perpetuating or allowing the client to continue this idea that old things that's unless you go to a course, you don't realize the harm that an expression like my back's gone. You know, well, where's it gone to? Sorry, what do you mean? <laughs> or, or, or my disc has slipped or my uh, pelvic floor has collapsed. You know, these ways of a patient considering what's wrong with their body perpetuate their discomfort. And this is all very much obviously tied to persistent pain. Um, and uh, even if we're working with runners and we think they're a real strong, sturdy bunch, it's still working inside. It's still these beliefs, these that they're fragile. Um, um, it's going to delay recovery. And it's up to therapists to actually very much look at the, uh, the, the, the language they use, they look at the language which the, the runners are using. And again, just just providing a surface, uh, providing a service um, based on what's being said rather than what they, they're proposing they're doing with their hands. Well, and that's what makes our profession, I think, so much more difficult is these runners are going to their physicians, they're getting x-rays, MRIs, whatever scan it may be, so they're coming back with this quote-unquote diagnosis that their physician has told them that it's going to cause them to not be able to run or it's causing this, that, and the other. And so they're coming to us already scared, already assuming that they can't do anything. And I think we almost can, to a point, we almost confuse them even more because we're here being like, you know what, just because this says this doesn't mean it's the end of the world. And so um, it makes our job more difficult and it makes big confusing situation for those consumers without a doubt and this is the thing we we it's it's a bold position to take like an evidence-based therapist is a very small fish in a very big pond but if things are going to change i mean we're already kind of challenging gps have got um like uh doctors as in like what do you call them in the states They're not gps are they just your regular yeah. yep. yep i mean they've already got a bad reputation amongst runners um you know it's like oh, i would go to my gp but all they're going to say is just stop running you know and and we can we need to build on that and actually take it one step further to bring into a little bit of less belief like surgeons consultants and again people i mean i've had the second podcast i did just when i was just by myself was because a, a runner had come into me with this perpetuated kind of pain and they'd been to see a consultant paid a lot of money privately um, to try and get it done and and the consultant's remarks included this phrase um, there's nothing you can do it's your anatomy and it's like there's very few cases where if you're born with a certain anatomy you can use that to blame for a pain of running injury you know you've had kind of 35 years later on if you're born a certain way your body kind of works out how to live that way and um, there's a couple of exceptions but generally blaming the anatomy is just well one it's unlikely to be true and two it's just perpetual you can set someone up with pain for the rest of their lives if they believe that they've got this kind of structural thing that's wrong with them and they're going to stop running they're going to stop doing exercise they're going to stop doing everything which can probably solve this pain because they're scared and they're fearful you know so we've actually got quite a big part to play i don't know what the state of your health system is over there but in the uk it's getting worse and worse and worse um, the dependency on pills and doctors and third parties is just ridiculous. Um, so private clinicians in particular over here, sports therapists, physios, osteopaths, um, 
chiropractics. We've got a very big responsibility to try and, and teach people, you know what, especially runners, self, you can self-manage this. I'm going to guide you. I'll give you a coaching plan. We'll have a look at you running and check. We'll rule out the red flags. But essentially, you can look after yourself with this. You're fine. You know, you're not rotting away inside. You know, yes, you're 50 years old and this X-ray showed or this MRI showed the um, generation of the disc. But you know what? Everybody at 50 has got that. It's part of getting old. You know, using these expressions like um, used a lot now, like wrinkles, you know, you don't wake up in the morning or some people do, but you don't look in the mirror and look at your wrinkles and think, oh, my God, these hurt. Oh, I've got a headache. Oh, my God, these wrinkles. I'm degenerating on the outside. It doesn't happen. You just think, Jesus, look at the state of me. I'm getting old. But you don't let it ruin your day. But yet you see a scan with wrinkles on the inside, which essentially is what degeneration of discs is. It's just part of getting old. And that's it. Suddenly you've got a whole nation of people who can't go to work anymore because they're convinced that they're degenerating, they're unstable, their discs are going to collapse. So it's like, it's a really big thing. Um, and this is, again, where my passion comes out to try and help private therapists because bit by bit we can change this. Every patient you send away and educate, they can tell their friends and spread it out. Um, so yeah, it's a big responsibility, but it's not, like I said before, you're not going to make a fortune out of it because the very business model of sending people away instead of booking them in for eight sessions. Um, hopefully the ideal is you'll get more people coming to you or, or seeking your services. Cause they know you're going to give them something successful rather than just kind of, you know, getting money out of them. But initially it's not a great business model, you know, and a lot of good therapists that I know it's no coincidence have to supplement the, the actual clinic time with workshops, with presentations, with other fuels of income, because it's not a nine five job. You know, if you've got patients coming in for every six, eight weeks and you're rubbing them and, and eight weeks later, they're still not better. There's something seriously flawed about what you think you're offering them. You know? That's what I think anyway. No, I, I completely agree. Like if, unless it's, an acute injury type thing that like they literally just had their injury. Yeah. Then I may see them a little more frequently, but otherwise, especially my virtual ones, it's like, let's talk every three to four weeks and see what's going on. Let's give you time to kind of work through things. Um, I may see someone for eight visits, but it's just over a span of like six months because we're working on different aspects of what's going on. Or at that point, they're more to, all right, we've, got this done. Let's work on getting you faster now. Or, you know, so you can run that hundred miler that you want to run that sort of thing and working on more of the endurance aspect. So it's, um, yeah, I, I cringe now at the, the model of, I need to see you two or three times a week for four weeks at a time. Cause I'm like, no one really needs that. <laughs> Maybe it's after tricky. surgery, but I mean, sometimes, and when I was younger therapist, I was guilty of, of losing myself money because it got to the stage where I convinced myself, this person's fine. You know, that you've done all the red flags, you've checked there's nothing seriously going on, you've, done, you've checked all the nasty stuff, which is obviously the really important part of being the therapist. You've got to negate all the things it might be and get rid of stress fractures and all that. But once you're convinced inside that they've just got to, you know, reduce their frequency for a little bit, do some strength work, load that tendon, etc. You think they'll be fine doing it. But of course the person who's come to see you is the one who's injured, not you. And, and they may well be very happy to come back next week to see you just so that you can be with them to make sure they do the exercises, you know? So not everyone is as strong willed as I think most therapists are quite confident, you know, they're kind of, that's why we do what we do. We're not scared of talking to people. 
So yeah, I mean, I always warn therapists not to always always say, "Do you would you appreciate coming back next week? Do you want to come back next week?" And if they say, "Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea," that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so do that, support them. But there's a big difference between supporting somebody, as in being with them when they do their exercises, or just having another chat with them, looking at their Strava or looking at their uh, training diary to to have a look at you know unsuitable peaks or something. And just having that person come in again and lying down, disconnecting while you do some kind of magic with your hands, that's different. you know. Um, so yeah, don't send them home too quickly because they might really need your help, but not for the reasons which traditionally we, we kind of impose on patients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that clarification. So what are you doing? I know your passion has really turned to the clinical or the clinician side of things. What are you doing in your courses in order to kind of change this model that we're um, that we've developed that we have developed over the years i think one of the things i'm trying to do with this with the conference in october and it's tricky because conferences cost guests aren't all living you know on your doorsteps so the speakers are coming we've got speakers coming from like i say the states and canada and australia and but i'm trying to get a crossover where runners and therapists are in the same room i try and hear my podcast one chat live so that both a therapist and a runner can benefit from listening to it. Cause I think that's one of the, the problems. Um, it was interesting because um, Ian Griffiths, who's a great sports pod. He's a, he's my go-to along with Simon Bartold is my go-to podiatrist. Um, he like did a survey the other day just on his, um, on Facebook, um, just looking at what I think it was, what do you think orthotic devices are for? So how do orthotic devices work? And, and he let people answer. And one of the, he divided it up. He, he made sure that people who were answering were either clinicians or they were um, just uh, non-clinicians. So they were just either runners or it wasn't just for runners. But, And then he collated all the results together. And it was quite clear when he, um, when he presented the results that all the therapists were like, oh, orthotics are just kind of looking at the kinetics and not the kinematics. And we're not trying to realign the foot or follow any outdated theory of it. Blah, blah, blah. It was all perfect. It was like quoted, which is what you'd expect from somebody who followed that's the trouble with when you just ask your followers you know what do you think of this they were just like puppet dogs going i know what you want (laughs) that's the problem with social media you know but it was interesting because the people the non-clinicians who replied were still coming up with oh well they can sort it out if you're an overpronator or they were coming up with the old classic kind of and that was people who kind of followed him or people who, who maybe friends of friends or something so the thing I took away from it was even if the clinicians are getting educated, the, the actual people out there, the runners or the patients are not. So something's wrong with the communication. You know, even there's no point getting clinicians all, all clued up and, and, and you know, singing from the same page if the information's not being kind of like, you know, sent out to the patients and the runners. So I very much try to make sure that the workshops I do and the podcasts and the conferences are of uh, um, a level of understanding that both a runner, um, a triathlete, a coach, a personal trainer, and a therapist could benefit from. Because there's no point if you're a therapist learning stuff in complicated language, because you're not going to be able to use that language when you're with the therapy, with the patient. Mm-hmm. If anything, you should be doing more um, CPD or continued education where you're learning how to work with the patients you know not looking at the real technical nitty-gritty and going down this kind of rabbit hole of of, of technology 
so yeah that's what i try and do i think it's important that we all kind of sit in the same room and i mean on this on this podcast we do on the uh, conference we're doing one of the things i'm really looking forward to is on each of the two days there's going to be a 90 minute question time with all 10 speakers on the stage and hopefully in the audience there'll be quite a lot of non-clinicians runners who'll be able to come up with questions a bit like we've got this famous show on called question time and, and well it's not famous anymore because it's just run by the government but it used to be quite a nice <laughs> show but as always politics gets in the way but but it's a nice idea where you've got professionals and people just ask questions and you debate. So we're doing two 90 minute um, days of, uh, on both days of that. I'm looking forward to that where runners have got the confidence to actually ask what they um, is on their mind. Cause I think it will show it will hopefully shock some of the clinicians in there uh, at, at how little runners out there actually know at the moment. And if the runners don't know it, then as far as I'm concerned, it means not enough clinicians are doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I would agree with that. Um, just the stuff I see in groups that I run on social media and just other posts on social media here and there, there's so much still that just isn't known. That's just, it's just friends talking to friends about what to do. And, and I think a lot of it does come down to as clinicians, historically, we've just been very much technical. It's been the manual therapy. It's been the exercise. We've never inappropriately trained on how to communicate and educate and unless we actually take time to develop that it's it just doesn't come yeah exactly um it's funny i remember uh, probably six or seven years ago there's a guy in the uk well he's international now but again he was kind of just starting off uh, mike stewart um and um, he's very big now he's at the san diego pain summits and all those sort of things but he was one of the first guys I got involved with at the same time as Greg Lehman, who was offering CPD for clinicians about um, uh, communication, about the language we use, the importance of everything. And I remember setting up the conference in the morning because I'd got like, I was again hosting him and it was one of his early conferences. I wanted it to all go well. I managed to get about 20, 30 people in, in my clinic. Um, and then I suddenly looked around and I was like, what's Mike going to see when he walks in here? And I realized like, we had these mugs which we would give people coffee in and on the mug it had athlete in rehab and we thought that's pretty cool that's a nice thing i thought oh, mike's just look at this and all you're doing is giving an athlete who's injured confirmation that they are injured they'd be drinking out thinking oh my god i'm in rehab i am broken you know it's like okay put the mugs away and then i noticed on the shelves there were all of these there was a few knees with the meniscus taken out and kind of well, the classic stuff which traditionally you have in a clinic but again, as Mike points out, if you go into a, a, a for, if you go and see a clinician and you've got a painful knee, and they show you this plastic articulated joint with a meniscus taken out, or it's red, or or this classic kind of vertebral column with one of this kind of red oozing stuff coming out from the side, even just thinking about it, and your back starts going, oh god, I feel a bit stiff here. So one of the big things he talks about, and and which made a big kind of impact on me was as clinicians, we think that these things, the posters we put up and the, the kind of models um, is what is, is useful. It shows that we're technicians or put on a white coat or a stethoscope or something. But all of these things just make the patient feel more vulnerable and they make them feel like they've got to put themselves into your hands. Um, it wasn't all done for bad reasons, but anybody who's evidence-based now really needs to stand back and have a look around. What the patient, what, this, what is this unhappy, stressed out, person 
going to see when they walk into their clinic with this pain in their back or their knee? Is there anything around here which is going to make them feel more vulnerable and more fragile, you know, and more like, you know, that they're going to need your help? And if there is, you've got to rip it down. You've got to whitewash it. You've got to paint it all over again. And that's something that on workshops I say is like on Monday morning, go back to your little room, even if it's just you in a room, just reconsider the information, you know, which people are going to see and hear and look when they walk into your room. I think it's a good way of starting. Yeah, that's a great point there because our vision does so much for our mental state and our physical state and everything else. So yeah, just changing what someone, even if it's just your waiting room, if you're in a big clinic, um, just changing what's in there can change everything. Without a doubt. We do it with kids. Kids go to the dentist and you put like a nice picture up on the wall to distract them. But suddenly when it comes to adults, we show them, we start showing them pictures of teeth falling out and cavities and close-ups of what's going on in their mouth. And the inside of anyone's mouth looks horrible. So imagine what a patient who's got tooth, toothache is going to be. And it suddenly changes. We just We lose all sense of common sense when it comes to working with adults in pain. Um, I don't know how it started. I don't know if it was showing off or trying to show you how much I know or, but it's just, there is a certain amount of logic that if you return to it and you just become just critical thinking is another thing which has to be on these courses. People need to, to think critically about what they're saying, what people are seeing, how they're arguing. When they read a research paper or a piece, they need to look out for some of the fallacies um, like that, like the natural fallacies. Just because something's natural doesn't mean it's the best thing. That's a classic one which we see all the time. If it, nature, nature hasn't got the best interest of humans at heart. Nature doesn't really care about humans. Otherwise, tsunamis would be fantastic for humans, and they're not. <laughs> so, all these people claim that anything natural is going to be good for you, even to the barefoot runners. You know, it's like, oh yeah, don't wear a shoe because it's natural not to wear shoes. As soon as you use that natural word, it doesn't make sense anymore. Because nature's not on your side, you know. So, um, and there are plenty of other logical fallacies. But that's something which, again, uh, clinicians just start thinking about. I, I think the other one to point out, the other word to point out too, is normal. That just because someone like the majority of the population experiences it, doesn't mean it's normal. It's like exactly. these certain injuries or these conditions. Like, yeah, ninety percent of people may have them, but that doesn't mean it's normal to experience. Exactly. It's like that old, you know, what's the average number of arms in the United States? What's the average number of average number of arms for people? You know, people go, well, two. And you go, no, it's not. So, well, of course it is. Most people got two arms. Yeah, but what's the average? It's actually about 1.99999 or something, because as soon as you put someone in there who's got one arm missing, of which there are a few or no arms, then the, the norm is no longer two. So everyone has got two arms now no longer normal. It's kind of thing. It's... Mm -hmm. Norms is a big one. I had that on Twitter again today. Someone was asking, and it's as soon as clinicians can stop chasing symmetry, stop thinking that the middle of, of, of a certain sample population is what we need to be, then that changes an awful lot as well. It's, it's, a, it's That's the most scariest thing because a lot of what we're taught is based on posture analysis, getting people with the same shoulder height, the same hip height, the, the, the same leg length. Even though, I mean, in the old days when I could be bothered, the first start of a conference would be everyone lie down and just do a leg length check on each other. And like those of you who've got exactly the same length legs, you can now stand up and there'd be one person standing up and everyone else is kind of, and that's like, well, how many of you actually managed to walk here today? Surely if you've got different leg lengths, you, how did you manage to get in through the door? You must be in so much pain. And it's like, ah, oh, right, I see what you're doing now, Matt. Yeah. Very nice. Very good. Can we actually sit down on our chairs now? 
but it's true you know we just got to think critically we got to think what am i saying here have a look around how many people are outdoors do you actually see with perfectly level shoulders and perfectly level hips they look weird most people who are totally symmetrical look like they've got something stuck up there i don't know what you can insert word there as you want but <laughs> totally symmetrical you look like you're, you're, you're a professional dancer and you just can't relax you walk in strutting yourself people don't have symmetry symmetry doesn't appear in nature you know so as soon as somebody thinks how much of my of my, my service is chasing symmetry oh geez i've got to think about that then and again it's not that you have to stop doing what you're doing you can still use these techniques and stuff but you've just got to be stop it's what you're chasing needs to change otherwise you can miss a whole lot of things yeah and i think um kind of threw me into or it threw me back into a conversation i had recently on another podcast recording that whole concept of adaptability and adapting to our environment and i know i was early on in my pt career i was very much like you have to have like that symmetry and keeping that neutral spine and keeping everything there well guess what that's not how we function. We have the mother with the baby on the hip trying to carry the groceries or reach for something. And so we're, our spines are all over the place and we need to be able to train someone functionally for that. So their body can actually handle these crazy movements that we do in our day-to-day lives rather than this, everything has to be straight and symmetrical and no variation. Most definitely. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big eye opener for people. And of course the research is there. You know, the studies are very conclusive in terms of looking at people in pain and whether they have got symmetry or not. Um, the link is very shady there. It's not something which, which clinicians should be chasing. And it's great. I mean, yeah, we all did it. We used to do it. And you know what? In a lot of exams, you st- I teach students who need to answer multiple choice questions. You know, what's on your posture analysis? Check for level shoulders, check for spine, check for API, check for it all. And I tell them, yeah, no, write that answer. Otherwise, you're going to fail the exam. <laughs> I just let them know that in the real world, when you get out, you're going to realize that people aren't like symmetrical and they're mm-hmm. not in pain. And, and if you start thinking, oh, the reason you've got lower back pain is because you've got an anterior pelvic tilt and you spend all your life trying to stretch this hip flexor or something, or you're going to miss the fact that the reason they've got lower back pain is because they're not doing any strengthening or they're running seven times a day a week instead of you know or or whatever it is so but it's exciting it's good (laughs) (laughs) awesome um just kind of start kind of closing it up a little bit let's go talking to the actual runner themselves like they're experiencing pain they're frustrated what's kind of the direction you would point them to go as far as to address these issues that they're dealing with so yes um it's really important to reinforce to runners that if you are in pain and you've tried just pulling back for sometimes if it's severe pain um and over the top yeah you got to get it checked out straight away but if it's kind of a niggle or something we use this kind of zero to ten in terms of how anxious you are if it's kind of a three or two then you know take a few days off running put your feet up eat well sleep well and you may find that it just goes you know you haven't got to go running straight away to a therapist but yeah if it's been three or four days and you've kind of nursed yourself as you see and it's still there then get it checked out because you know it's um, it might be something serious it might be something uh, particularly if you're a runner and you've been overdoing it obviously we look out for 
um, things like stress fractures. We want to avoid you where possible wearing a kind of a stability boot for eight weeks and then having 16 weeks of rehab. It's not a great place to be. So if you have, for example, got signs like shin pain or something, especially pain at night, especially kind of phantom pain, well, not phantom pain, but just pain, which is kind of just over the whole body and it's kind of systemic and kind of just, you don't feel right then definitely need to get these things checked out. Um, and that's where the professional needs to have their, their technical training and to be able to look out for red flags and, and, and again, look at the case history and check if there's something serious and that needs referring on. Um, but that said, hopefully when you do go and see the professional, then they'll be able to do a, um, a big case history. Someone is get slightly frustrated at therapists who take a long time just talking to them, but when I see a, a runner for the first time, the first session might not have hardly any hands on at all. It's a chat, depending on how much running you've done, your history, what you've had wrong with you in the past, um, what your kind of perceptions are of where you are. You may have an hour of talking and chatting and looking at details and, you know, um, because that's where the answers generally lies. You know, yourself, um, after you've got that, that's the foundation, that's the bottom of the pyramid, then you can start looking at the way they move maybe, whether they're overloading certain tissues or uh, what the potential reasons are, do some strength tests. Um, so yeah, never ignore pain, get it checked out. But if when you get checked out, you find it's like, hi, what's your name, sign this bit of paper, right, jump on the couch, I'm gonna fix you, then you need to have alarm bells going off. You know, It's like, um, um, Diane Jacobs kind of says, I like her analogy of like a, um, a sandwich where you've got, um, you've got to have any form of manutherapy has got to be, first of all, your top back or your top bit of bread is going to be some, uh, is going to be um, some education. Um, and then at the other end, you're going to have some kind of um, active exercise you're going to have to do yourself. You can have some manual therapy as kind of like your meat in the middle. That's fine but you've got to, it's got to be surrounded by some education and some take home exercise to make it complete. So if you find that you're just going in there and just being slapped on a couch and clicked or poked or rubbed or twisted or all of these other magical things and nothing else. Yeah. Your pain may go down. You might walk out thinking, Oh, I feel great. I can do this again. I'm fixed. But chances are you're not. All that's happened is there's been your brain, your nervous system has suddenly had a, especially in the case of a click, Chiropractics get a get a bad kind of rep, but I mean I know a lot of very good chiropractics who evolve with the time. But research shows quite clearly that the more whatever you have done to you as a runner, um, if it's a click which obviously you can't do yourself, that's probably going to have more of an effect on you in terms of bringing pain down straight away than anything else because the belief systems that are in play. It's like the way that an injection is going to have more of an effect in terms of. Uh, reducing pain than a pill because again it's more intrusive it's more something that a third party is going to do but you know how many times old school chiropractics we, we see people come to us and it's like oh yeah i've been going to see my chiropractic for a, for a year now i go and see them kind of once a month and again you just gotta you know you gotta be careful and subtle and go what why are you seeing them or just to realign me okay that's cool. And, and so why are you seeing me today? Oh, cause I've got this back pain. It just won't go away. How long have you had it? About two years. Okay. So the, how's the chiropractic going again? If you're coming to see me now, and of course you don't want to, you know, at the end there, there's somebody who's making a living out of this with kids probably, but 
it's your duty if someone's coming to see you to kind of have a look at you know where their other stresses are um and maybe kind of insinuate look you've been seeing this i don't know maybe it could be something else you know so and again i'm really sarcastic so i've got to be so careful but when someone comes to me and said they've been seeing somebody for i don't know something like as i say chiropractic or anything cranial sacrotherapy or something for like every month for a year and they're still in pain you know you, i've got to hopefully get in the conversation there somewhere maybe it's not working i don't know what maybe it's tricky though. even now i feel like i'm being really sarcastic <laughs> but people do it it just shows how dependent and how strong some of these therapies are on 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 even edu Runners are supposed to be a tough, strong bunch. You know, it's not like you're dealing with somebody who feels very vulnerable, a kind of 60, 70 year old. Runners are notoriously strong, but the belief systems of having somebody click you or kind of realign you and, and are very strong. You do get people who have been going for years, same thing, once, once a week. Or It's not until you kind of say, is it working? <laughs> go, Actually, you might have a point of it. Now you put it like that. So yeah, so there we go. It's easy to laugh, but a lot of people suffer from it and it all costs. I have difficulty holding my tongue at times with that situation. So I get it. Um, And then just to close it up, if someone wants to contact you regarding anything they're dealing with or about your conference coming up, how can they find you or reach out to you? So um, I've made it remarkably more difficult about a year ago because for 10 years or so I was sport injury mat and that all went very well. But then the podcast started taking off. So I made the decision to rebrand as Run Chat Live. So nowadays, everything, everywhere, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or Grindr or um, any kind of social site that you're looking for me, Snapchat, then, um, yeah, I am Run Chat Live. Um, And um, even the email, matt at runchatlive.com. So I've tried to make it simple. Um, the details of the conference, for example, they're all over the media. I, uh, I get so guilty sometimes of putting it all out so often, but there's so much competition out there. When I see these 20,000 likes on a back realignment spine thing, it just makes me put something else out. So I, I always apologize for, for kind of putting out the details, but it's, it's so difficult. All I want to do is make, I hate the idea of somebody who could benefit from the information which is being put forward at the conference, and there will be some great information but I don't manage to reach them. You know, that's, that's my nightmare. Um, so yeah. So if you do like something you see, then do please share it. It's not, I'm not making any money out of it. It's just, um, for the better of mankind and womankind. And, and Awesome. I like it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking this time with me. Um, and for our listeners and, uh, we'll definitely keep in touch. I hope so. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been very nice meeting you in person. And of course, seeing you, I, I yes. hope I haven't made you laugh too much. Not at all. Not at all. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.